resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty, and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general, resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, with however so many and how great soever. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. So wrote the young Jonathan Edwards in the opening commitments to his 70 resolutions. At the top of the list, he wrote a note to himself. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. (laughs) Now, in light of that, and especially number five, never to lose one moment of time, what are we doing here today? Why spend a precious day on the life and theology of this particular dead guy? Perhaps we could even ask ourselves, what would Jonathan do? I want to propose there are at least three reasons why this is a great way to spend our day. They all begin with I. Importance, influence, and instruction. Importance. Evangelical Christians are sometimes accused of not understanding enough about the long tradition of Christian history. This leaves us rootless, superficial, and poorly equipped to deal with perennial heresies that come up in the church. The critique is sometimes warranted. In my first year at theological college, I remember privately wondering why we were required to do an entire course on church history up to the Reformation. After all, not much happened between the New Testament and the Reformation, did it? (laughs) By the time the course was ended, I knew otherwise. It turned out that Bob Marley was right. If you know your history, then you'll know where you're coming from. And Edwards is a giant one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the Christian church. Just listen to these historians. Doug Sweeney, the most influential thinker in all of evangelical history. Michael McClimmon and Gerald McDermott. From a retrospect of three centuries, the transatlantic revivals of the 1730s and 40s, with Edwards as their leading theological interpreter, left a sizable legacy. It is called evangelicalism. Josh Moody, like Augustine, Martin Luther and John Owen, Edwards is one of the great historic teachers given to the church to help it interpret scripture. If we can learn from his response to the Enlightenment, we will be aided in responding to our culture's reaction to the Enlightenment as well. Is Edwards important? I think so. Some have even called him the American Augustine. Secondly, influence. The chances are Jonathan Edwards has profoundly influenced someone who has profoundly influenced you. Do you listen to John Piper? Do you read Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? What about Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, and many others would all say that reading Edwards has transformed their lives and ministry? What inspired a group of obscure British Baptists in the East Midlands to send William Carey to take the gospel to India in the 1790s? Answer... Someone sent them a bunch of Edwards books from Scotland and they read them and exploded with missionary zeal. They caught a vision of God's sovereignty and a theological optimism that would change the world. 
And then Carey's example sparked the great century of missions in the 19th century in which dozens of missions agencies were founded and hundreds, maybe thousands of missionaries were sent to the unreached world. And the the roots of all that were down in the the writings of Edwards. We support a, a a church planter in North India who's from South India, a young man called Daniel Raju. And on every email I get from him, he has this in his auto-signature quote from David Brainard. I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. Where did the quote come from? Edwards. His range and influence is astonishing. And that's without mentioning his input in terms of reviving reform theology and his contribution to pneumatology, that is, theology concerned with the Holy Spirit. Edwards is perhaps the greatest thinker on the nature of true spirituality and true conversion that the church has seen. So, uh, importance, influence, and thirdly, instruction. There is loads to learn from Edwards as a thinker, theologian, preacher, leader, pastor, missionary, husband, dad, Christian, There's loads, and not all of it is good. Edwards was a truly great preacher, theologian, and at times a truly terrible pastor. At the same time. Listen to this quote from one of his members of his church, Bernard Bartlett, 1735, said that his pastor was as great an instrument as the devil had on this side of hell to bring souls to hell. Now that quote is not going on the website. Seven years later, Reverend David Hall, Sutton Mass, after a visit from Edwards, wrote in his diary, I thought I had not saw in any man for some years so much of the grace of God causing the face to shine. How can those two quotes be about the same person? That's the question I've been wrestling with ever since beginning work on this paper. How is it possible that Edwards could oversee two great spiritual awakenings in Northampton, in his church, and then be fired and run out of town by the same church ten years later. How is that possible? So the two sessions today, the life and the lessons of Jonathan Edwards, and today I want to tell the story to start, and I'm going to quote my learned colleague, Michael McLenaghan, there's no honour in making men Christ. There's no honour in making men Christ. Do you come out with quotes like that just off the cuff? Yeah? (laughs) So, we're going to start our time together by getting our bearings in the story of Edward's life, and I want to tell the story in five movements, which are on your handout on the inside there. Inheritance, preparation, awakening, confrontation, and mission. I've used various sources, but I want to show you this one. Somebody in our church said, it's the McDaddy. I don't even know what that means. It means it's very important. George Marsden, Jonathan Edwards, A Life. If you only have money for one book on Edwards, get this one. As Roger Carswell used to say, sell your shirt to buy it. Can I just say, how many people, hand up if you've read Marsden? So a few have, okay. Thank you. Right, firstly, inheritance. Entering Jonathan Edwards' world. Come with me to the world of Jonathan Edwards. In the year of his birth, 1703, New England was populated by fewer than 100,000 English subjects. By the time of his death, 1758, the number had grown to 450,000 in the whole of New England. The population was smaller than Sheffield today. By 1740, the three largest cities in America, Boston, New York and Philadelphia, 
each contained about 10 to 15,000 inhabitants, which is smaller than Moss Side, if you're from Manchester. Edward's major ministry in Northampton, Mass, a frontier town in western Massachusetts, had about 12 to 1,400 residents, mostly farmers. George Marsden suggests that the world into which Edwards was born will make a lot more sense if we think of it as British rather than American. At this stage, New England was a British colony and the American Revolution was not on anyone's horizon. Edwards lived in a thoroughly pre-revolutionary British province. That means that America's greatest theologian was actually British. <laughs> and I find that a rather gratifying thought. Kirk... Andrew Knight, can I get an amen from over there? <laughs> can we get it on Twitter? Yes. Did it last night? Fits on. America's greatest theologian was actually British. New England's British or old world character was most conspicuously evident in its rigid hierarchical structures. Edwards was an aristocrat by New England standards. Clergymen in his area wielded more authority and could expect more deference to their opinions than in most parts, other parts of the British world. And Edwards belonged to an elite extended family that was part of the ruling class of clergy, magistrates, judges, military leaders, village squires, merchants. In fact, his family was married into other families that were known as the River Gods in the Connecticut Valley, the River Valley. Um, and that elite background, I think, will be important in, to remember in assessing why, to some degree, he failed as a pastor. He expected deference... And he didn't always feel the need to explain himself to lesser mortals. Now, the first thing you would notice as you entered one of those small New England towns was how quiet it was. You would hear some noises, people talking, working with tools, the clopping of horses' hooves, cows mooing, sheep buying, the village idiot chattering. But you wouldn't hear any engines. No planes, trains and automobiles, no industrial equipment, no phones. In fact, the loudest sound in many New England towns was the ringing of the church bell. And as you walked across the town green towards the sound of that bell, you would see the most important building in town. And you would find it somewhat unimpressive. The Puritan Meeting House, as it was known, was the centre of civic as well as religious life. But compared to England's grand neo-Gothic churches, it was very ordinary, more like a barn. Uh, the buildings were plain and sided with wood, clabbered, and often left unpainted. No stained glass windows, no soaring architecture, nothing focused on an altar. It was deliberate. The visual focus was the pulpit, or the desk, which was the locus of biblical scholarship in the people's midst. And the minister's role was primarily as a biblical scholar who handled the word of truth, not a priest who performed rituals. Everything said and done in these churches focused on the Bible. These people had organised their towns, built their church buildings, their communities, and planned their church services to fix people's attention on the word of God. And it was into this world that Jonathan Edwards was born. His father, Timothy, was a rather strict, third-generation Puritan pastor. And young Jonathan had four older sisters, and eventually six younger sisters as well. So he had ten sisters reminded me of the first time I met my father-in-law, who had three daughters, and he said to me, you know what, even the dog's a bitch. <laughs> the Edwardses were tall. Timothy boasted that he had 60 feet of daughters. 
He's regarded as an intensely disciplined perfectionist, a worrier about details, a firm authoritarian who's nonetheless capable of good humour and warm affection toward his family. George Marsden suggests Edwards never entirely escaped the hold that his demanding but affectionate father had over him. Now, right in Edwards' DNA as a human being was the notion of revival. The earliest handwritten letter that we have by Ed Jonathan was to his sister Mary. He was 12 and she was 14. What do you think of this? Dear sister, through the wonderful mercy and goodness of God, there hath in this place been a very remarkable stirring and pouring out of the Spirit of God, and likewise now is. But I think I have reason to think it is in some measure diminished, but I hope not much. About 13 have been joined to the church in an estate of full communion. I think there comes commonly on Mondays about 30 persons to speak with Father about the condition of their souls. There's a 12-year-old, Barney. <laughs> Do you write to your dad like that? Dear Father. Now, then he goes on to some family news. Now, the striking thing about that is a letter of a 12-year-old boy placing the spiritual update front and central. It's highly suggestive of the atmosphere of his early life. Notice the vocabulary. A remarkable stirring and pouring out of the Spirit of God. Notice, too, the observation of decline. I have reason to think his is in some measure diminished. But I hope not much. As early as 12, we see Edwards writing about the concerns that would dominate the rest of his life. The church, the ministry of the word, the Holy Spirit's work in conversion. Harry Stout comments, In a profound sense, revivals were in Jonathan Edwards' genes. Were there to be a spiritual genome, revival and Jonathan Edwards would make a perfect match. From his father, Timothy Edwards, he would acquire the tools and the ambition to be America's greatest preaching theologian. And from his maternal grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, he would inherit a revivalist role model without peer. But before we can get to Stoddard, I want to think about Edwards' own conversion, which was far from straightforward. Point two, preparation. When did you become a Christian? Can you remember? Exactly? Can you remember what happened leading up to it? Was there a moment? Was it gradual? Do you have evidence of a consistent changed life afterward? Or have there been patches that were decidedly up and down? Now these are perennial questions, and they particularly trouble those of us who were brought up by Christian parents, who haven't got a, a great conversion story, or people who've had a spiritual lapse. Am I really saved how do we understand true conversion? What does it look like? Now, the Puritan writers paid close attention to this question, and they enumerated a number of steps that they expected people to go through in order to demonstrate and experience true conversion. And three main steps are outlined. The first one was conviction. You woke up to the state of your soul, your sad state with regard to eternity. Secondly, there was humiliation. After the first enthusiasm, the person would experience a backsliding into sin and that would make them realise the terribleness of their sins and God's justice in condemning them to hell. And sometimes this stage was described as involving terror. And then thirdly, if God granted, new light and a new spirit could be given, leading to a glorious change in life. But the problem for Edwards was that his experience didn't completely line up with the textbook conversion story. In a document known as the Personal Narrative, which he wrote in his late 30s, he gave a retrospective spiritual autobiography. 
He wrote that since childhood he'd had a number of concerns about his soul and he'd had two seasons where he was especially kind of uh, spiritually concerned which were in themselves not true conversion. The first of these when it was when he was a boy during a time of great uh, enthusiasm in his father's church. Jonathan was very much affected for many months and he says he was abundant in duties. He prayed five times a day in secret. He spent much time in religious talk with other boys. And he built a booth in a swamp with some schoolmates for a secret place of prayer. <laughs> he said, I had a kind of delight in religion, but mistook it for grace. And in the process of time, my convictions and affections wore off. And I entirely lost all those affections and delights and left off secret prayer, at least as to any con constant performance of it. And I returned like a dog to his vomit and went on in ways of sin. At the age of 13, Edwards left home to study at what later became Yale College. He excelled, he graduated at the top of his class, but underneath the surface, all was not well. He had his second spiritual wake-up call, and this time it came through serious illness. He had pleurisy, and he felt as if God shook me over the pit of hell. He resolved to commit himself to God, and for a time he did, but he soon lapsed again and returned to his sins, struggled with pride, most likely sexual lust. But God would not leave him alone. All the while that Edwards was continuing in his brilliant theological and philosophical studies, he was battling with a violent spiritual struggle underneath. He was utterly miserable, but he didn't feel the terror that the Puritans diagnosed as part of the journey to true faith. Now, part of the problem was actually intellectual. And the big issue was the sovereignty of God. In the personal narrative, he wrote, From my childhood up, my mind had been wont to be full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty, in choosing whom he would to eternal life, and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish, and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. Then the breakthrough came. Marsden says he came to what we would call a paradigm shift. He read... 1 Timothy 1.17 Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. And for the first time, Edwards had an inward, sweet delight in God and divine things. As I read the words, there came into my soul, and as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I'd ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was, and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God, and be wrapped up to God in heaven, and be as it were swallowed up in him. And from about that time I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas about Christ, and the work of redemption, and the glorious way of salvation by him. I had an inward sweet sense of these things that at times came into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And from time to time I found that inward sweetness that used as it were to carry me away in my calm, sweet abstraction of soul. And a kind of vision or fixed ideas and imaginations of being alone in the mountains or some solitary wilderness far from all mankind, sweetly conversing with Christ, and wrapped and swallowed up in God. 
the sense I had of divine things would often, of a sudden, as it were, kindle up sweet burning in my heart, an ardour of soul that I know not how to express. So, the sovereignty of God became to him a sweet and delightful doctrine. How did this happen? Marsden observes that for Edwards, the intellectual breakthrough and the experiential breakthrough were closely related. Edward resolved his conflict with God, not by accepting modern thought and the ideas of the Enlightenment, and then adjusting God's sovereignty to kind of fit with it, but by beginning with the essential starting point of Christianity, the triune God who created the universe, an unfathomable God, and then he thought about how modern thought would fit into that framework. And the crucial insight that he has, starting from that Trinitarian framework is that the universe is most essentially personal. It is at its core a universe of persons, a product of a loving being, and a being who is Trinitarian. And in the midst of the persons, there is love. Why would God create? The answer has to be that there is an overflowing of God's love, and God wants to share his love with other creatures who can respond to it. So that the very essence of the origination of the universe is not in some merely physical phenomenon, but rather in the creative love of a personal being. Now I think that's really interesting on a number of levels. First of all, it defied the notion that there's one type of conversion journey. Edward's experiences were not textbook, and his father seems to have been rather suspicious of them. Yet they were genuine for Jonathan. And in part, that might just be God's way of dealing with different people. But I think there's something else going on culturally. You see, Timothy Edwards was essentially pre-modern. Jonathan, however, was growing up in a world that was shaped by Newtonian science and Enlightenment philosophy. He was reading John Locke at the age of 14. He was trying to put together the faith of his tradition with the challenges of his culture. And I think that's why his experience of conversion is so different from his Puritan predecessors. Another lesson from Jonathan Edwards' conversion is that it involved a change of affections and heart. Conversion was not merely mental assent to data, but changed affections with regard to Christ and the scriptures. And that will be crucial in his later analysis of true conversion. Not simply intellectual conviction, nor mere emotional experience, but an integration of the whole person. And thirdly, let me point out, Edward's conversion was not plain sailing. He, has a, he wrote a diary for a number of years, and in the diary, you get the, the true st- underlying story. There were times when he was spiritually dry, dull, and felt dead, including a period of three years of spiritual depression, when he was, for the most part, in a low, sunk estate and condition, miserably senseless to what I used to be about spiritual things. A three-year spiritual depression. Maybe that is an encouragement to someone here. But he did maintain that those were the struggles of a converted person. And he came through them stronger. Well, after graduating from Yale, and he he had a couple of short-term pastorates in New York City and in Bolton, Connecticut, not Greater Manchester, he did a a period as a tutor at Yale College, but then was offered um, the ministry job of his dreams one of the best opportunities in New England, assistant to Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather, 
in the most prestigious church outside of Boston, Northampton. So began Edward's association with the Church of Christ at Northampton, and he went there uh, in 1727. Now, I'm now moving on to Solomon Stoddard's stage. Even at the age of 83, Solomon Stoddard was a formidable presence. He'd been at the church for almost 60 years. So he'd been there longer than most people had been alive. He seems to have been what we would call an alpha male. He was socially, economically and politically powerful. Opponents called him the Congregationalist Pope. Stoddard was a radical. He opened the communion table... To all baptised persons, as long as they accepted the orthodox faith and lived a decent life, without demanding evidence of conversion. Now, that was radical. He declared the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance. In other words, it could be the place where a person got saved. Now, that was radical in Puritan New England, where the supper was usually jealously guarded. But Stoddard believed that evangelism, within an institutionally open church, was the best way to save souls. And he was a phenomenal evangelistic preacher. He advocated the preaching of terror to tenderise the consciences of sinners like stake. He would beat on them. Effective ministers were sons of thunder. Men had need to have storms in their hearts before they will take themselves to Christ for refuge. The word is as an hammer and we should use it to break the rocky hearts of men. Terrifying preacher. Stoddard had known five harvests in his church, uh, starting in 1670, during which time usually the young people in the town were gathered in, convicted, terrified, and joined the church. But by the time Jonathan Edwards arrived, his grandfather's powers were waning, and two years later the mighty prophet died, and 25-year-old Jonathan mounted the steps of the pulpit in Northampton on a cold Sabbath morning to face the congregation who were now his flock. Point three, awakening. This is the longest point, by the way, and then it gets quicker, just to try and encourage you. I'm going to deal with the next phase of Edward's life as a unit, because in 1734-5 and 1740-42, something took place in New England that changed the course of history under God, and it's often been called a revival. We'll also use the words awakening and renewal interchangeably. What is a revival? Essentially, it refers to a time where God's spirit is seen to be at work in powerful ways, waking people up to spiritual realities, renewing and empowering Christians, blessing ministry of the word, enlivening the church, and bringing a lot of people into the kingdom. If we had time, we could debate the background to how this came to happen there and possible sociological reasons. But for now, let's accept that these things happened and track the drama. When he took over from his grandfather, Edward's assessment was that the town was not in a good place. The greater part seemed to be at that time very insensible of the things of religion and engaged in other cares and pursuits. Just after my grandfather's death, it seemed to be a time of extraordinary dullness in religion. Licentiousness for some years prevailed among the youth of the town. But many of them were much addicted to night walking. It's kind of unauthorised going off together at night. Not... Cub Scouts doing a night walk, <laughs> frequenting the tavern and lewd practices, wherein some, by their example, exceedingly corrupted others. Edwards goes on to mention other behaviour about the youth that shows that they were 
not bothered and even contemptuous about spiritual things. But the adults were hardly any better. They divided into jealous factions based on wealth and property and status. There was constant tension and rivalry between the haves and the have-nots. Outwardly, these people were orthodox, but they had no inward faith. Their orthodoxy was dry and lifeless. But the tide began to turn in late 1733, with young people starting to listen more to the preaching and to try and change their ways. And then in April 1734, there were two deaths that impacted the whole community. Firstly, a young man was violently seized with pleurisy and died two days later. And then a young woman who'd been distressed about her soul also died. But along the way, she experienced great comfort at God's mercy and spoke to many people. Now, this started to stir things up. Edwards was never one to miss an opportunity for preaching the gospel, and he seized the moment to offer an eternal perspective to the young people. And he also stepped into a theological controversy that was brewing in the region over uh, what they called Arminianism. He preached a series of sermons on justification by faith, and we'll hear more about this from Michael later, I think. Some people met ridiculed him for getting involved in the controversy, but he claimed it proved the word spoken in season. And it was most evidently attended with a remarkable blessing of heaven to the souls of the people in this town. And then in the winter, it was as if the Spirit of God began an extraordinary movement and wonderfully worked among them. And one after another, five or six people were quickly converted and some others worked upon by God in a remarkable manner. Now that was just the beginning. The renewal continued to flourish and spread throughout the town throughout the entire winter. Edwards was astonished. Here are some of his observations. People were captivated with talk about the gospel and getting into the kingdom of God. Almost everyone in the town seemed to be concerned with spiritual things to the extent that they were neglecting their day job. There was a rapid multiplication of conversions, leading to a glorious alteration in the town. Church meetings became a delight. People were spiritually alive, drinking in the word of God, vibrantly listening and engaging with preaching. Public praise came alive. People sang as they'd never sang before. Doubting Christians were assured with God's love. Every Christian was greatly woken up and renewed with a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit. And an unprecedented number professed faith. Edwards estimated that more than 300 people were converted in six months. Now remember the town only had about 12 to 1400 people living there. And of that group, it was roughly 50-50 men and women. And a large number were over the age of 40. So it wasn't just the young people. It It was through the whole community. Now Edwards was amazed by all this. And he reported that the revival, the renewal, had spread beyond Northampton into other towns as well. God's work has also appeared very extraordinary in the degrees of the influences of his spirit, both in the degree of awakening and conviction, and also in the degree of saving light and love and joy that many have experienced. It's also been very extraordinary to the extent of it, and it's being swiftly propagated from one town to another. Now, it was all going great, but then there was a rapid downturn, Even as the revival peaked, it seemed as if the Spirit of God gradually withdrew and the fires died down, and then tragedy struck. Edward's uncle, Joseph Hawley, who was a prosperous merchant and a leading man in the town, cut his throat 
and died in half an hour. He was a believer and a moral man, but he became obsessed about the state of his soul. This led to sleeplessness and deep depression. He could see no hope of salvation because he lacked assurance. They had a family history of melancholy, what we would call depression. He despaired of hope and he took his life. And after that, the revival seemed to take a nosedive. And other people felt strongly tempted to kill themselves. It was as if they heard a voice speaking to them that said, Cut your own throat. Now is a good opportunity. Now, now! Edward's assessment was that Satan seemed to be more let loose and raged in a dreadful manner. Now, while events had been at their peak, Edwards had written this excited letter to his friend in Boston, and the friend was over the moon about it, and he forwarded the letter to some influential preachers in London, including Isaac Watts. And they were so impressed that they asked to hear more. So Edwards basically went into print while things were going well, and he wrote what became a spiritual classic the faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighbouring towns and villages of Hampshire in New England. Proof that you don't need a snappy title to be a bestseller. <laughs> now, it's really ironic that just as Edwards is becoming internationally famous as this big leader and promoter of revival, and just as the faithful narrative goes global, it, the, the revival looked like a spent force. How embarrassing. Enthusiasm died down. Many people lapsed into their former sins. And some of the dramatic conversions no longer looked that good. One historian writes, During the next few years he struggled unremittingly to retrieve the halcyon days when Northampton was a city set on a hill, but nothing much happened. Nothing much happened until five years later, when the English evangelist George Whitfield came to New England and set the whole region on fire, metaphorically speaking. Whitfield was an extraordinary preacher who benefited from some very effective marketing. He travelled the country preaching to packed churches and houses and even in the open air. He, he preached to 5,000 people on Boston Common and more than 8,000 people in a field. People were racing there in carts to try and hear him. For his farewell sermon in Boston, more than 20,000 people showed up on the Common. Then he came to Northampton at Edward's request preached powerfully. Now after 45 days, Edwards had preached 97 times and had a national impact. And his tour was then followed up by Gilbert Tennant and a number of others engaging in travelling itinerant ministry, including Edwards. And those events of that two-year period have rightly been called the Great Awakening. Now, revival is an endlessly fascinating topic. It's exciting and thrilling to think of God working in that way. It's not been limited to New England. Don Carson reports of similar type of events, conditions in Quebec. In his father, towards the end of his father's ministry uh, in the 1970s, I believe. And lots of other examples could be given. And don't you yearn to see some of that in our day? At the same time, these awakenings were sporadic and they quickly subsided into what we might call normal life. Not only that, they also created a lot of problems. The Great Awakening generated excessive, wild side effects that split the New England religious world down the middle and prompted years of schism and dispute and debate. Edward stepped up as the leading champion of revival, but he was measured. He didn't affirm everything that took place in the name of revival, but he carefully studied to separate the authentic 
from the spurious. He wanted to defend the genuine work of God, but at the same time acknowledge that there had been defects. How could true spiritual experience be distinguished from false? So he published a number of works on that, the greatest of which was called The Treatise on Religious Affections. Here he was able to marry his observations on what had happened in renewal with the theological conviction that true religion in great part consists in holy affections, a changed heart. He argued that there could be a lot of immaturity mixed in with a genuine revival. In the spring, innumerable flowers and young fruits appear flourishing and bid fair that afterwards drop off and come to nothing. So a shower causes mushrooms suddenly to spring up as well as good plants to grow. He obviously didn't like mushrooms. In the spring of the year, when the birds sing, the frogs and toads also croak. Always keenly aware of satanic counterattacks whenever a true work of God was happening, Edwards wrote, "'Tis by a mixture of counterfeit religion with true, not discerned and distinguished, that the devil has had his greatest advantage against the cause and kingdom of Christ all along, hitherto." Now, he did not have far to look for evidence of opposition because it was brewing in his own backyard. This leads to our fourth movement, confrontation. Confrontation, the young folks' Bible and the communion controversy. Since 1744, trouble had been brewing at the mill in Northampton, starting with the young folks' Bible. Now, this was a rather sacrilegious reference to a midwife's manual, which some young men had obtained and had hidden up a chimney. It was being passed around behind the bike sheds, and there was a lot of sniggering. A midwife's manual was the early 18th century equivalent of a porno magazine. And it led to a degree of sexual titillation, lewd joking, and some harassment of girls. Now, in our depraved age, this seems rather tame, doesn't it? A bit along the lines of carry-on midwife or something. But Edwards was deeply concerned. The sexual sin was serious. About 20 young men were concerned. And these weren't teenagers. Most of them were in their 20s. The taunting of women was a serious public concern. It was filthy speech that endangered the spiritual well-being of others. And most of the young men involved were Edwards' spiritual children who joined the church since that first awakening, which is rather agonizing. And for Edwards, the emergence of an irreverent youth culture could be subversive of everything. Now, more interested in principles than aware of politics, he just went public. He brought the matter to the church, announced a time when a committee would meet at his house, and in a fateful mistake, read off a list of people ordered to report to his house. The list included some who were accused and some who were witnesses, but Edwards failed to disclose any such distinction. Now imagine this in the packed church. Some of them named were from prominent families. According to Samuel Hopkins, before the townspeople reached their homes, some leading citizens condemned the procedure. And by the time the committee met, the whole town was in uproar. This was a political own goal on a massive scale. Edwards didn't seem to realise. Now, the issue was resolved and some of the leading offenders signed a confession. However, the affair revealed some cracks under the surface, particularly to do with Edwards' leadership style and his relationship with his church. 
he still assumed the autocratic style of an authoritarian minister and expected deference. But the culture was changing. Remember, these were the people who, a few decades later, threw off their British masters. And he hadn't really gone out of his way to win people's hearts. When he wasn't haranguing them from the pulpit, Edwards was locked in his study for 14 hours a day. He was available for spiritual guidance for anyone who came to see him, but that group would basically be self-selecting. It's only the intense, serious, serious Christians who go and see the pastor. He wasn't given to visiting the rest of the church. Tensions were building that would actually lead to him being fired. And the straw that broke the camel's back was the consternation that Edwards caused over the Lord's Supper, here referred to as the communion controversy. Now, the underlying theological issue, remember we talked about Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather, who was a radical, he had an open table for anyone who was a baptised Christian leading a decent life, and he thought that that could be a place where someone, you could preach the gospel, and someone could be converted at the supper, was actually radical. And Edwards, it sort of gone along with it for a number of years, but privately felt uneasy. And eventually he made up his mind, and he decided to impose his view on the Northampton church. He would demand credible evidence of conversion before admitting someone to membership. Now this was turning back the clock to the early Puritan ideals, and it was a clear repudiation of his grandfather's views on which this church had been nurtured. He wrote to his friend Joseph Bellamy, You may be sensible, dear sir, that it is a time of great trial with me, and that I stand in continual need of the divine presence and merciful conduct in such a state of things as this. I need God's counsel in every step I take and every word I speak, for all that I do and say is watched by the multitude around me with the utmost strictness and with eyes of the greatest uncharitableness and severity. And let me do or say what I will, my words are represented in dark colours. And the state of things is come to that, that they seem to think it greatly concerns them to blacken me and represent me in odious colours to the world to justify their own conduct. They seem to be sensible that now their character can't stand unless it be the ruin of mine. Now that assessment was bleak but accurate. The town, and particularly the leading men, were out to get him. He had lost the hearts of his people. In late June, the male members of the church voted on whether they wanted Jonathan Edwards to continue as their pastor, and out of 230 members who could vote, only 23 said they wanted him to stay on. 10% after more than 20 years of ministry and leading two revivals. Is this the tragedy of a great man being crushed by following his own high principles? Or is it the pathos of a brilliant but impractical intellectual whose prudery and zeal for control brought out the pettiness of a small town? Marsden says, as in most of real life that rises beyond the ordinary, it was a mixture of the exalted and the pathetic. One scholar describes Edwards as a pastor in all his grandeur and misery. How did it come to this? Now, various factors were mentioned by the town in their case against their pastor. They mentioned his salary. He was always trying to get paid by them, which is really inconvenient. The fact that they thought some of his family's lifestyle was a bit posh. 
The fact that he didn't do much pastoral visitation. But primarily the way he handled the matter of changing the church's practices regarding communion. And this is the nub of it. At this point, the town was ready to believe the worst about him. The community which had once followed Edwards in two revivals had come to doubt his motives completely. And we'll come back to this at the end of the day. The importance of politics, small p, in ministry, of people having relationships of trust, so important and so easily overlooked. Patricia Tracy traces the town's lack of trust to Edward's way of operating. Having announced his principles in the book, The Religious Affections, as he thought, he merely worked out the administrative details in a cavalier fashion as he went along. He discussed restrictions on baptism and ministerial vetoes as though they were easily assumed corollaries of his revival doctrines. But to his church, they were revolutionary, unnecessary and completely unacceptable. He was out of touch with what would happen with the people. The people weren't on the same page and he lost their trust. Now that is a sobering picture indeed. And I want to think about its implications for pastoral leadership later on. But let me just finish with the fifth and final movement, and I'm sorry to do it so quickly. Mission. After being dismissed from the pastorate in 1750, he stayed in the town for an awkward year, searching for his next job. And sometimes the town couldn't find a preacher, so they had to ask him at the last minute to fill in the pulpit. Can you imagine how awkward that felt for everyone? But Edwards apparently handled it with good grace. The frontier mission at Stockbridge in Massachusetts seemed a perfect place for a fresh start. It was an experimental missionary village based on the concept of Indians and English people living in the same town. The settlers offered education and sought to, quote, civilize the Indians. At that point, civilizing was believed to go hand in hand with evangelizing. Edwards was popular with the Indians. He served there for seven years, but almost the entire period was blighted by greed and politics again within the British community. By the time Edwards had won his case, most of the Indians had left in disgust. The whole episode was a tragic lesson on the danger of mixing politics and mission. And once again it seemed that Edwards was the loser, but his time was never wasted. He constantly worked on ambitious theological projects, regularly spending 14 hours a day in his study, and this enabled him to produce some of his masterworks, including The Freedom of the Will and Original Sin. Massive philosophical critiques of 18th century rationalism from a reform perspective. Now, he already had quite a big name, but the publication of these works marked him out as a scholar of the front rank, and in 1757, the College of New Jersey, later Princeton, approached him and asked him to start to come on board as the president. He would be able to study, write, teach students and exercise strategic leadership in the Christian world. He accepted and moved to Princeton in 1758. Sarah and the children planned to follow him later and he bid them farewell. He turned and called, I commit you to God. It was the last time they saw him. He died on March 22nd from a smallpox inoculation calmly, patiently submitted to the will of his Lord, who had guided and inspired and loved him all those years, only a few weeks in to his presidency at the college. What kind of legacy did he leave? 
Well, I'll think more about that later.